We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation-teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Episode 46, coming to you from the NPR Anecdotal Anatomy Library. Welcome to your mat. Gather your things and your props and find a comfortable seat. Have you been wondering about your karma? How you're going to make things manifest? How you feel blessed and living in the love and light, letting go of ego, honoring the laws of attraction, seeing signs from the universe everywhere you go, sitting in deep self-love through deep self-care, raising the vibration so that you can do the work and follow your bliss. You know, everything happens for a reason. So we're going to hold the space for you today to really dive into compassion and so that you can listen more closely to your body. And through awareness, we will touch on the practice of being present in an effort to embody presence and an understanding of how focus will lead you down the path to presence. And once you're present, we're going to work on shadow work. We're going to deal with your triggers, delusion, illusion, all the traumatic shit. And we're going to get really into it. We're going to talk about our bad body parts. We're going to talk about pain and injury and how we can heal ourselves. So, like, which one of those is love? Which one of those, which one of those expresses kindness, love, compassion? I mean, if, you may have an impulse of which one. Maybe it's both. Yes. Maybe it was because we were so good at our yoga voice. Instead of being insistent that you just walk into the room, sit down, grab your stuff, and let's get ready to practice. And sometimes that is my yoga voice. Because sometimes you walk into the classroom and everyone is, you know, hanging from the chandeliers and they're screaming and it's like a fucking cocktail party. So you have to put on a different voice. And all of this is just to suggest that there's no one way to express love, compassion, all of that. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. You know, we talk so much in the yoga world about holding space. We're going to hold the space. What does that mean? You know, holding the space for just the good things, for just the positive high vibration that moves us into our most optimal selves. Well, sometimes there are obstacles or shit we got to get around and get through. And so we have to address those too. And we have to be with that discomfort. Yeah, I, you know, and times of heavy, heavy stress. I don't know about anybody else. I know I have defaults in my times of stress and it's avoidance. It is, oh, I don't really want to have to deal with whatever this thing is. So you know what I do? I work a lot. I'm like, oh, look at that project over there. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to start working. I'm going to create something. I am going to dive so deep into work that I can avoid every bit of the things that I don't want to have to deal with. And sometimes that avoidance even is, is subtler because we practice. You know, we have these spiritual practices that aren't they supposed to keep us from pain and trauma and suffering? Well, no, actually, and I, I hate to spoiler alert here. These practices are not protection. They're not armor. They can be both sword and shield, uh, but that's discernment. And that takes some time to understand how to use the practices. But if we're coming into yoga, meditation, any number of practices, chanting, mudras, whatever they are, with the expectation that they're somehow going to help, you know, ease the way the, and from now until death, until death do us part with ease and, you know, loving, kindness, compassion, all of that, then I think we're going to in for a pretty rude awakening. Yeah, holding the space, for me anyway, in my view of holding space for myself and for others, is 
to allow anything that needs expression to be expressed. And that can be expressed in, you know, uh, laughing. It can be expressed in crying. It can be expressed in sadness or pure joy. But when we have feelings that arise, holding space is allowing ourselves the gift and or others, if we're holding the space for others, the gift to feel and experience and process. We talk a lot about the stories the body holds and the stories the body tells. And why do we think that the body's holding on to all of these stories? Yes, we embody each and every one of our experiences, but do we also stuff some of those experiences into places within our body for safekeeping? So that maybe if we don't want to address them, deal with them, or feel them today, we can just stick them over somewhere in this little box and tie it up really nice and tight with a little bow so that when we're ready to experience them, we can let them out. Or maybe they show up in our body in a completely different way as discomfort or stress, or maybe just changing our voice and acting out to other people because instead of experiencing and processing, it turns into frustration. Yeah, you know... I think personally, I think we're lucky if we have the chance to feel the range of feelings. You know, I, as a parent, I have three kids and, you know, I never would want to deny them the experience of rage, of sadness, of disappointment, of frustration. And, you know, my kids are sort of the generation after the helicopter and lawnmower parents who really, you know, for their best intentions, and I do believe the intentions were there to help clear the path of obstacles to make sure everyone is recognized, seen, and heard, to make sure that, you know, the kids don't have a whole lot of suffering. But the problem with that is that we don't then nurture, cultivate, grow the mechanisms within us that allow us to meet those inevitabilities, those inevitable moments in our lives where things are just going to fucking suck and there's not anything anyone can do about it. And sometimes the only thing we can do is hold the space is to be there when someone else is wailing in, in, in sadness, when someone else is raw in their emotion. And, you know, as a parent, we've likely all experienced that. And as friends, we've likely experienced that. As children, as, you know, if you're in relationship with anyone, the chances that you have touched something raw is great. There's also a great chance that once that nerve ending has been <laughs> activated, that there's a quick retreat that there's a holding, that there's a stress, that there's a, you know, I don't want to deal with this now. And it may or may not be conscious. It may show up in distracting activities like doing a lot of work. It may show up in, you know, uh, diving into a hobby or, you know, uh, reading constantly or binging, whatever it is that takes us out of that discomfort. And sometimes, even if we're, you know, people who are in touch with those things, we can acknowledge it, but then it kind of gets tucked away in our fibers, you know, in our bodies. And then they, there could be even the illusion that it's been dealt with until, you know, something happens. Ooh, you're talking about fibers. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get you with that one. <laughs> the fibers of our body. <sighs> you know, if we're going to talk fibers, well, first of all, you know, our fibers want to glide and slide, be fluid. You know, we're a gliding fluid system, this container that we walk around in that we call our body. It's a fluid system where each of the components have unity with the whole and also individuality within the whole. And in that, we want to be able to glide and slide and interact but interact without feeling of being stuck and tethered, each of the parts being stuck and tethered to another part. And for me, if I begin to ignore my emotions, if I step away from experiencing them and stick them over into my file cabinet in my brain that I put all the things I don't want to deal with, then I also begin to notice that I lose some of that glide. 
that I'm not as fluid, that I feel more weighted down and stuck. And it isn't just that I'm stuck in my thoughts. I, I feel that I embody the stuckness, that what goes on in my brain and my thoughts when I don't hold the space to feel each of the emotions, whether I label them as my most positive or my most negative, because we all have all, if I don't create the space to allow all of them to have a present moment where they can come into my awareness, either briefly or enough time to contemplate them in at my sit spot or in, uh, you know, notice how they arrive in a mindful meditation to just see those thoughts kind of flowing by, then I'm heavy and I'm stuck and tethered to not being present. I'm tethered into something in the past that I completely pushed aside as if it never happened. And ironically, and I'm going to use the word ironically, even though it's often misused, ironically, that feeling of, of letting go of that, that emotion, of ignoring it, of putting it in, it's not really letting go, it's more storing it in the body. There's that illusion that we've let it go, and then that creates the heaviness. Mm -hmm. So the mind fucking games that we do with ourselves, you know, and here, part of what we're doing here is about calling ourselves out. You know, if we can be present and if we can experience poor, pure presence, then we can recognize when we're, when we're messing with our own minds. And that can come up. There is a term that was coined, I'm going to read it because I don't want to mess up, coined in the early 80s by a late psychotherapist called John Wellwood, and he called it spiritual bypassing. And I think that, you know, it's something we have all done at some point. And when we recognize it, we can begin to work with it. And spiritual bypassing is just, you know, focusing purely on, oh, every, so, okay. I know I tend to do that a lot, just half thoughts. Spiritual bypassing, I'm going to give it a tie-dye color. I'm going to say, as a deadhead, someone who loves the Grateful Dead, it took me many, many years to learn that not everyone in a tie-dye is a nice person. I would go into the experience, go into a dead show. Everyone is love and light. Everyone is here in service. Everyone here gets that hippie feeling of love and peace. But that's bullshit because often in these areas, they're also predators. They're going to be predators everywhere. And until we can practice and work with what we call in Buddhist prajna, which is knowledge, and there's precision to this that allows us to be discerning in the moment, then we get caught up in this spiritual bypassing that can result in some, some horrible outcomes. And so... The practices that we do aren't about either including it. We talk about all beings a lot. Like, what is all beings? May all beings be happy and free. And Teresa just talked about wholeness or being one, that when we're talking about the fibers, something about wholeness. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I know I'm going to go off tangent a little bit, so maybe draw me back. <laughs> pull me out when I go too deep. But I started thinking about this thing about all beings. And all beings, we're all one. Now, we can't all be one. One, if we're thinking of one as wholeness, wholeness is made up of parts. We even say it, the, whole, the sum of the parts or the sum of the whole, the parts of the whole, that we create wholeness by these individual bits. By being this unique individual in the world, we are connected to every other person, creating a fabric of wholeness that we forget in this living. And then we, you know, we, we cover it up with language and practice and all these things that keep us from remembering even if those practices are designed to get us to remember. And that may be where the spiritual bypassing is because ego comes in and ego separates us from the whole. And so there was something I wanted to read to you. Okay, so Chokyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who is the father of, I'm holding up a book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And he says, to the conventional way of thinking, compassion simply means being kind and warm. This sort of compassion is described in the scriptures as grandma, grandmother's love. You would expect the practitioner of this type of compassion to be extremely kind and gentle. He would not harm a flea. If you need another mask, another blanket to warm yourself, he will provide it. But true compassion is ruthless from ego's point of view. 
because it does not consider ego's drive to maintain itself. I'm not going to talk too much more about that. It's a bit crazy, but we do so much to protect ourselves that even in the language of spiritual practice designed to get us present and dealing with the real shit, we're still hiding. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. I'm going to make the sound that you pointed out. <laughs> I love and it. I, I love noticed it. that I go, whoo, maybe the listeners have noticed more and you noticed, but it's one of those patterns that I have that when I hear something and I'm like, oh, that. Whew. So okay. just to, to tie it up, there's, there's this one sentence. He says, the sudden energy of ruthless compassion severs us from our comforts and securities. So, I mean, these are things we don't tend to put together, ruthless compassion, severing us from security and that safety. Like, but that's the world in which we live. And that's, I don't know, that's I, at least over time what practice has revealed as being a tool, as being one way to meet things as they are. But first, we have to see them as they are. And we don't want to do that. No, no. Oh, that takes time and effort and being willing to be vulnerable, even if it's just vulnerability with yourself, to hold the space to be vulnerable and look at a situation with awareness, not not just in an effort to be like, oh, yeah, that happened, blah, 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 but to become more in tune with who our authentic self is, to really touch that part of us that realizes that vulnerability is strength. There's a softness sometimes to strength that gets gets confused. We don't, I don't, I, I shouldn't say we, I don't always see the softer side of me as being a strong part of myself. But over the years, I've realized that being sensitive, maybe even being a little bit oversensitive is a strength, not a weakness. It's a way in which I can connect because I'm able to interact with people, interact with myself through my senses and my feelings. And I'm not saying I do that all the time. Sometimes I too am very protected and have these like, oh, I don't feel comfortable in this situation. But my practice is to be in touch with those feelings and to allow them to inform how I'm going to show up because I've created enough space and respect to understand my feelings enough to know I'm sad or am I angry? Am I frustrated or am I pissed off? Like yeah. sometimes without creating the space for me to really observe those feelings and sensations, I confuse them and put them into maybe a category or a definition where they don't belong. And then I'm just like, I'm just going to hide that away. I don't want to deal with it now. I'm walking away from it. And, you know, we both use the term hold the space quite a bit already, and we've only been talking for about 10 minutes or so. And what's interesting about this idea of holding space is that it feels like it's holding it for either for ourselves. I mean, we have to hold space for ourselves. But typically in a teacher-student relationship, we're holding it for others. And so it becomes really important to do the work, which is another thing that was on the list of things that we say, to do the work on ourselves so that we can hold the space for others. And I know my experience is when I'm holding that space and it's not extreme one way or the other, it's just a typical day and we're just being together, it's a lot easier for me to take a step back and, and be present. And, and have that presence in that relationship. When it gets extreme, it becomes harder for me to remove myself from ho just holding the space and, and sort of hurling myself into the space, trying to make myself relatable to the person who's suffering so that they don't feel alone. Say, oh, I understand I've been through that, or, you know, I totally get you, or whatever that is, or I'm so sorry. Whatever words I may have, I'm no longer holding the space for that person. What I'm doing now is a therapy thing, and I'm not qualified to hold therapy. That is not my job. It's not in my purview. I can have a conversation with someone and if we've set the boundary around that and said, okay, do you want my opinion? Do you want to hear what I have to say? I would love to be able to, let me just hold you. Whatever that is to sort of get the consent from the, the other person, even if that consent is for yourself, because it is hard to hold the space for ourselves. But that's the work we have to do in order to be able to do it for others. 
And the reason why it's so on the surface for me is I've recently had the experience of being with someone I love who's in a very raw emotional state. And every time I would start to say something, I thought, don't say that, like, just be here. And then to, there was no language suitable for that situation. And anything that I could relate to is bullshit because it's not me. And it's not my time to say that. So the work on self is important so that we can hold the space for others. Yeah. And I haven't counted our hold the spaces, but I know that we've said them a lot, as you just pointed yeah. out. So it might be worth diving a little bit deeper into what that means. When I was teaching in massage school, you know, we talked and taught holding the space because it is not an uncommon thing when somebody is receiving touch for that to tap into the senses of the body to, for lack of a better word, a portal into some of those stories that the body is holding. As you're receiving touch, maybe we tap into it. And I've so in teaching my therapists in school to hold space, we gave context. Like, for instance, if somebody's having an emotional release, it would be very little conversation. We might say something like, would you like to continue or do you want to stop at this point? So empowering uh, our client to be in control of their own session. May I get you a glass of water or a tissue? something to feel supportive, but not inject ourselves into their story or their experience. And then, shall I take a break for a couple of minutes and allow you some time? So I'm not looking to fix or offer my opinion or tell you what to do, but rather to allow you the time that is necessary for you to make some choices on how you would like to proceed. Because whether it's a yoga teacher, a massage therapist, or just a really dear friend, we're not therapists. And sometimes the best thing that we have to offer is our compassionate listening and time to process. I couldn't agree more. And I think that in a, in a classroom situation or in a professional setting, that line is easier to see and it's easier to honor because we've taken, I won't say vows, but we've, we've sort of decided that this is the ethical way that we're going to, you know, perform our duties as teachers. When we start dealing with loved ones, that line is a little bit harder to honor. And so, yes, you know, I'm not, if, if someone's on the table, is this cool? Like we, we move in those stages, but when you're holding someone you love who is just, you know, in, in a raw emotional state, the impulse to want to help, to want to, you know, not fix it in the moment. I've always, and you know, that it's not, I don't have that power anyway to fix anyone. It's not within anyone else's ability to do that. But there is a sense of, you know, I, of self-control is the thing I would need to work on. And I often, I am that person who is making it relatable, who wants it to feel good, who is saying things are going to get better. Everything happens, you know, for a reason. Though while that is language that can be harmful when said at the wrong time, at the right time with distance and perspective can be a teaching tool. So language is not either good or bad. It's not helpful or unnecessary. It's, I think with everything, it's discernment and timing. And to be able to read the room in that moment. And I say this because every day I feel confronted with have you really learned this? You're doing all this practice. How's it showing up? And it's easy for me to rely on, well, I'm sitting stiller. I'm sitting for longer. I'm sitting more regularly rather than go to, well, I did fall into the trap off the cushion the other day that I'm, I've been working on. And just to be able to call myself out on that, to be able to be accountable for when I am, I am not in alignment, for when I say things and then I just succumb to old patterns. Everything that we've talked about is everything we talk about. You know, we can't separate our koshas, our patterns, our archetypes from the way that we interact with our world. And that's necessarily going to show up in how we hold space for ourselves and others. Yeah. And when we talk about holding space for ourselves, I'm just going to stay with holding space for myself and maybe be a little bit more personal so people find a way to relate to holding space for themselves. And 
I feel like I can easily fall into the trap of, this is kind of funny since we're on Zoom and recording, but I'm going <laughs> to say fall into the trap of being in my devices way too much. And one of the things that I'm finding out with the newer studies that I'm doing and uh, my new practices of being out in nature and to really understand our senses and how we experience the world in a felt sense, what we feel and experience through our senses, that I've had people say to me recently things like, oh, I don't really have a sense of smell. I don't, I, my sense of scent is gone. I don't really notice COVID? that. No, it wasn't COVID. <laughs> it was just a natural stepping away from really not tuning into our senses, noticing, like, I noticed that my dog and Siva's barking in the background, so I know that she's barking. But if I really stop to be noticing through my sense of hearing, there are people speaking outside down uh, down the block a little bit. I can also hear the slight sound of the birds way off in the distance. So we do practices of noticing the sounds that are close and then becoming more in tune with what is more subtle, the practice of listening beyond what is it right in front of us. And the more I spend on my devices and the less time I spend outside or even inside noticing like, oh my gosh, that butternut squash soup I have in the crock pot right now is deliciously sweet. And I cannot wait to have a taste of it for my dinner tonight. What I've heard, noticing all of the little subtle things through my vision that are in your background, Sherry. I'm always excited when we sit here <laughs> and we have our conversations because there's always something else on your bookshelf that I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that. There's a little skeleton or there's a gazing ball that's so magical. There's just, or a title of a book. And Jerry like, Garcia's right there. Yes, a 3D Jerry, Jerry Garcia. <laughs> so we talked about, you know, being a deadhead. But... You know, I think that when we're talking about being in touch with our emotions, with being able to process and be present, there's a desensitization that comes when we are singularly focused on our devices and we don't create the space for all of our senses to give us the input love what's going on in the world that around, that's around us. And I think our senses are kind of a portal to our feelings. We notice and then maybe they we have an experience that helps us to decide, ooh, I'm in a good situation or mm, maybe I'll just tuck, the, tuck this one away for a while. I don't want to deal with it. What I love about these practices too is that they take on many different flavors. So, for example, we've talked about senses and the listening before, but not in the context of holding space for self. We've talked about it in the context of embodiment, in the context of our senses and interacting with the world. So we could have a menu of practices and they could each one work with so many different energies, so many different contexts. So, for example, like for me, holding space for myself is all about curiosity. It's about, and it's also embodiment because the curiosity is typically sparked when I feel something in my body. And that feeling in my body is typically a message that I'm out of alignment somehow. And so how can I sit with that? Be with the reality that I am not always who I say I am. Be with the reality that sometimes I fuck up and, you know, revert to old patterns. Be with the reality that there's still so much more to work on to become the highest vibration the highest, you know, part of myself in this lifetime. So there, it's a process of holding the space that um, at different times, different practices allow me to fully become aware of. But I think it's that curiosity piece and the willingness to look, the willingness to call myself out when it's not 
right, when it doesn't feel good, when, you know, again, I'm the asshole. Like, fuck me. Why did I have to go there again? Why didn't I have the self-control to take a breath and recognize that that was just a threshold? You know, what is it? So having years and years of practice gives me a context and a language that allows me to further explore those particular avenues. Yeah, and also, you know, to explore our own, how we show up, oh, that is a practice in our in itself. Like, how did I show up in this situation? Did I show up as being kind and compassionate, which is not the same as showing up with my nice, calm voice? Hi, everything trying. is good. <laughs> I'm have know, a coconut not... water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was totally judgy. I would, I did it. I judged you, whoever you are, who went. Oh my God, that sounds just like me. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And I think that, you know, having a nice soft presence is a real attribute. But sometimes, you know, I may have fallen into the pattern of overplaying it. And then it just feels inauthentic rather than supportive and being present, but more just like almost like a brush off, like uh, when I fall into being overly solicitous. But, you know, coming back to understanding myself and my feelings based on nature and how we show up and why it's important to experience what needs to be experienced. So for instance, I'll tell you a little story about my, my morning. Uh, I went out, I got up. It's, I kind of really, really like mornings after it rains. It's a little bit damp and there's dew on everything. These little droplets of water that are dripping from the trees. And I was a little tired and Siva, of course, needs a walk. So I get her all set. But within a couple of moments of feeling that post rainy day morning, I started to notice, huh, I'm really kind of enjoying this walk in the dampness. And part of my walk every day is stepping through a path that has pine trees. And there's something about the scent of pine trees. Maybe it goes all the way back to childhood Christmases and, and trees in the house. I don't really know what it is, but I do know that experiencing that scent often brings me this sense of immediate calm. And if I'm feeling upset, I'm feeling confused, I find myself being drawn to go to places that will calm me down so that I have a clearer vision of what it is I really want to see and experience. It kind of is like I step into that pine scent and it's like taking the eraser and erasing the board of all of the clutter that's on it and just go, oh, here I am in this present moment. And so I stopped and just took this nice deep inhale and the pine leaves have been fall the pine needles have been falling down so I stepped on them and crunched them which released their scent and encased in their canopy and that brought me to a present place and I kept walking and I always go over to this grove of the trees that are kind of off in the distance and I don't have a lot of time for a sit spot when I have Siva with me. Her attention span is about 30 seconds of me standing <laughs> still. But each morning I walk up to the very same tree. And this goes back to you saying we're all connected. I walk to the same tree, all beings everywhere, be happy and free. And I lean back. And as I lean back and lean into the support of the hardness of the trunk, I can feel the uneven texture of that bark, almost like, oh, yeah, you're going to scratch my itchy back for me. I can feel it against me. And it takes me into a place of feeling supported. And I don't know, somehow for me, that is empowering to say, now I am ready and prepared to feel whatever emotions I need to come up whatever I need to process, whatever I need to feel. I think that's where consistency comes in, in terms of being able to take that feeling out of the easy and into the hard. 
So when you're in that, what I'm hearing is that when you're in that pine area, it just, it brings up all of that goodness. And so you feel prepared. But what happens when you leave the pine grove? How long does that last? How long can you feel that empowerment before it begins to fade? And the only reason I say that is because it's been, that's, I've experienced that too. Like here I am. See, I know exactly how you feel. I know I've been there myself. That same kind of thing. But this idea that we go into a workshop or a training or into the woods or at a tree or wherever it is that wakes us up to that moment. And we feel oh, the surge of power. We feel Archangel Michael coming to envelop us with his wings and lift us up to the highest height. And then we leave that particular situation and you know, it, then we're confronted with a situation where we are, that's exactly what we need to meet it. If that was uh, an isolated experience in the Pine Grove or an isolated experience at a training and you didn't really do anything to support it after that, then how do we cultivate more sort of a, a longevity of that presence? It may, it's going to wax and wane, but that's why consistency of practice is so important so that when we are surprised along the path with an obstacle or something that yeah, we don't have a tree to rub our, our back against or the, the scent to help infuse us with that feeling of courage and power, then what is it that we can access? And I would say we access the experience of consistent practice. Yeah, I think consistent practice gives us these embodied sensations. It It is... For me, my consistent practice and what I've learned a lot from you in mindfulness meditation, especially when you introduce me to keeping my eyes open when I meditate, this mindfulness practice is my trail, my pathway to embodied sensation. And if I go to that tree and I pass through that grove every single day, well, it's not every day, it's most days, if I cuddle up. Yeah, I'm a tree hugger. If I cuddle up and I feel the tree against my back, when I'm stressed, when I really need that support, when I need to be reminded to be present, you know, is it possible to recall the scent with such vivid sensations when we're not even anywhere around the feeling of that rough bark on my back or the scent of the tree in the air. Can I imagine it? Oh, the curiosity of a child, right? Kids' imaginations are amazing. They would be able to imagine it like that. But can I imagine it in such vivid detail that I can feel the presence and the strength of connection to be able to deal with the thing that's coming up right at this very second? Well, on the heels of that, I will say yes. And, you know, for some people it will be possible and for others not, maybe the scent. But, you know, we both teach community tree in our public classes and in the things that we lead. And that's just, you know, getting into a circle and everyone putting their hands together and supporting each other with their hands and putting it right into the box in a, uh, the Zoom box. But so we press into each other for that support coming into tree, which is a balance, run one foot. So they shake it out, come out. After doing that several times over my teaching career, when I'm in tree on my own practice, sometimes I'll just put my hands up and imagine that my community is holding me up, especially on days when I feel unbalanced. But see, I'm coming back to asana, the asana that has been a regular practice for me for 23 years, 24 years. I mean, it's almost 24 years. So with that consistency of practice, I can bring into feeling that feeling of support. Not that I would have even thought about doing that early on, you know, but the emphasis on asana in our culture has allowed us to kind of perpetuate this, the, the practice in that way. But yoga, we're decide, we're calling it yoga eight from now on. Yoga eight, it's eight limbs. We practice our, you know, pranayama, our breath. We practice our meditation. We practice the yamas and niyamas, which are the ethical pieces of this practice. We practice the philosophy. We practice all of the parts of yoga. And so, you know, Teresa and I, we're leading this retreat that's coming up in November and it's still open. So you can go onto our website, anecdotalanatomy.com, rhythm and rhyme retreat. And um, why did I even bring that up? What were we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about yoga eight. And oh, yes. And it goes far beyond asana. 
Thank you. Thank you for bringing me in, sister. So, you know, as we're developing these practices and we're thinking, oh, is that going to be too much mudra or too much chanting or too much breath work or too much of meditation? We think, would we ever say in a yoga class, oh, that's too much asana, too much movement? We never would. So one of the things that Therese and I are doing in these conversations and in our live events is we're, we're trying to bring some equanimity to the limbs, let's say, to bring up the value of the practice beyond just the body. And this comes back to season one. It goes right back there to the koshas, that each one of these limbs will tap a different energy source in our bodies and allow us to more fully inhabit the container so that we can move through this life and not feel that we need to avoid the hardship. That reminded me that practice and yoga, there is a practice, but for me, it's a lifestyle. And when we talk about yoga eight, it's a way of looking at different precepts and uh, practices that inform the way I've chosen to live my life. Before Anecdotal Anatomy, I think I have 10 episodes of a podcast called Yoga Off the Mat. And Sherry was a guest way, way, way back when, <laughs> when it started. I think I talked twice as fast then too. <laughs> This journey of, you know, coming together into this current podcast. But the reason that I started the my original podcast, Yoga Off the Mat, was because of my commitment that yoga is a lifestyle. You know, when I was at uh, Kripalu, one of the people I was eating lunch with asked me, do you practice yoga every day? And I, I always find that, that question fascinating because I said, yes, I do every single day. And she said, how do you have time to get to a studio and get to your mat? Or do you do it on Zoom now? And I said, I think the question you wanted to ask, and forgive me if I'm going to rephrase it in a way that wasn't your intention, but I think what you were asking me is, do I practice asana every day? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, so the answer to that question is, no, I don't always get on my mat for a formal asana practice, but I believe that yoga is uh, a lifestyle. And eight gives us a template of different practices and ideas and philosophies and breath work and rituals that we can pick and choose from at different times in our life, depending on what's going on that allow us to deepen connection with self and maybe to dive a little bit deeper into some of those hidden parts of myself that I don't always want to look at. And I can create that space, not only hold the space, but create the space to allow for whatever needs to come up to surface because I feel like I am well supported in my practices now to be able to face it, right. face on, and uh, move on from there. So in, the, in terms of language, I think the word formal is the key to that question. Because even if it's not asana, creating a, a container for formal practice is different than living the tenets of yoga. That's putting the practices into practice. It's putting them into life. And so when I think of practice, I think of, I think more formally. I think it doesn't have to be asana, but it could be the sadhana every morning when I wake up. That is my practice. I take what I, I experience from my practice and hopefully bring it into my day and into my life and my interactions with my people and other people. And sometimes I succeed and sometimes I fail. But the practice piece for me is, is that other layer of consciousness on top of creating the container that has, it, it's not finite, but it, it's whatever I decide it is in that moment. So sometimes my sadhana is 45 minutes, sometimes it's 90 minutes. It depends on how I, I am infusing that practice, but it is still an entity of itself. But And I, I say that, but I also don't mean separate. It's not separate from me or my day, but it is. it has its own feeling state of consciousness that is different than the way that I live it in my life. For me, I think if there was no sadhana, if there was no formal practice, it would be impossible to make it a lifestyle. Because the sadhana is how I learn to embody all of these different tenets. And 
sometimes it's a formal sadhana and sometimes my sadhana is a walk outside with a walking meditation. So there's, that's what I really love about yoga and it's, it's broad breadth of practices, breath, no pun intended. And yes, I meant it. Red, oh. there's a D in that one. Red <laughs> practices because there are times when we don't have time to go to our mat or maybe you overslept and said, I still have to go to work, but I want to have that, that morning practice. Oh, I, we, when you said that, I just jarred something. I have written down several times when I felt like I didn't have enough time. I got up late or I had something to do. I wrote abbreviate, don't abandon. So rather than doing 20 minutes of asana, I'll do four half sun salutations. I'll come over, I'll do my chanting three times instead of, or nine times instead of 27. I do, I'll do my breath work for two minutes and then sit for 10 minutes rather than, you know, but instead of abandoning it, which is an easy out, it's easy. And I've done that for years and I didn't have a sadhana for years. My, my formal practice was completely at, at a studio. It was public classes. It was trainings. It was workshops. It's only been in the last few years that I've created a sadhana. But that is only to say that, like, they, it's so easy to succumb to that desire. Just like, I don't have the time. And time is one of those excuses that feels real, but is just an illusion. It's one of those hard, compassionate truths that you have to say, no, you don't have to give it all up. Just make, You could sit for three minutes, three minutes, three times a day. Do something that is going to be, instead of your regular practice, but is going to still feel as if you've honored the time set for self. And there's, there's a lot of space to choose practices that will fit in with the lifestyle. What's really amazing with when you look at Yoga 8 is there are so many options that we can choose in that abbreviation to stay connected to a formal practice when perhaps our timing doesn't allow us for what we've written down as this is my sadhana. Yeah. And it might be a good idea right now to just define sadhana since we've said that a number of times. So for me, and I'm sure that there's, it's different than the way I learned it, which seemed very, very complicated. It seemed like I had to for me, it's a daily practice that includes various forms of, of the limbs. You know, it's for a while, it was just meditation every day, 20 minutes, anywhere from, and if I didn't have time, five minutes, 10 minutes, but a daily meditation practice that has become regular. I will say sometimes I'll skip a day if I'm here or there or whatever, but only for the last four or five years out of the 23, have I had a regular sadhana outside of formal practice at the, at the studio. So it's just regular daily practice, and but it has it has a rhythm and rhyme to it, if you will. <laughs> it has a certain order, and so in the beginning, what I do now is when I wake up before I even come downstairs, because once I'm downstairs, all bets are off. Uh, I stand, I cross a threshold, and I do. I don't even have my mat upstairs. I have a hardwood floor, and I just I do my asana there. And I face east-ish. I open up my windows and I come into an elegant samastitahi. I come into Anjali Mudra, into Dasana. And then I do three or four half-sun salutations. Sometimes it turns into 12 half-sun salutations. Sometimes with my eyes open, sometimes with my eyes closed. And then I just let myself move into asana. I do balance poses, mostly standing poses, and that could take anywhere from 10 to 25 minutes, depending on the rhythm and flow of what I'm doing. And honestly, I usually start out cold and not wanting to do it, but I do it anyway. And I stand there within, after the first couple sun salutations, I am in it, I am warm and I'm ready to go. The energy has already shifted. It's already moving in a direction that I want it. When I'm done with the asana piece, I move over to my bed where I have my cushion, my heart pillow. I face it east and I sit on my pillow and I chant. The beginning, I was doing the Gayatri mantra 27 times. And now I'm doing Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavan 2, which we did in season one, which is may all beings everywhere be happy and free until I do the next mantra. And that's going to be just as my spirit moves but I want to do the mantra practice with each mantra at least a month so that I can give it the juice, the consistency, the momentum to do the energetic work that it has to do. And I think that one and done is good. Done is good. One and done is good. But it's it, there's so much more potential out there. 
And then I have my insight timer on my phone, which I have set to 25 minutes. The first, I have one bell after five minutes. So I do a pranayama, a breath work exercise for five minutes. And then when the bell goes off, I go right into my mindfulness meditation. And that's 20 minutes and the bell goes off. I bow. And then I select an oracle card of one of my many, many decks. And that is my sadhana. And that is what I've been doing every day. I think with the exception of three days for the last almost two months. I have a sadhana that I have been practicing daily and you do as well. But I don't want that to feel overwhelming. We have uh, the Rhythm and Rhyme Retreat coming up and we all start someplace. This is an invitation. If you are listening in real time, Rhythm and Rhyme starts in two days. This is November 5th, 2022. If not, hey, look back. We probably have uh, some podcasts that we're going to do after the retreat. <laughs> but for those of you who are hearing us in real time, this retreat is not for anybody in particular. You don't have to be a seasoned yogi. You do not have to have a formal sadhana or a formal practice. But we are going to really dive into some fun fun games. We're going to have a fire ceremony. We've already talked about the idea that we might howl a little bit there. Yes, we'll have some breath practices. We will introduce chanting and mudra, uh, mindfulness in a whole variety of amazing ways because we're going to be outside with all of our senses, Teresa's favorite place. So we will be outside on a farm that also has a beautiful nature walk and an evergreen walk. So we talk a lot about yoga. Rhythm and rhyme is designed to be a step in to someone who is looking to have a deeper connection with the rhythms and cycles of both the earth and ourselves. So rhythm and rhyme, our rhythm and our cycles of aging, the rhythm and cycles of a day, the rhythm and cycles of the year, who want to step into a practice or just learn a little bit more. So you can be the most seasoned practitioner or somebody who is brand new. And the retreat piece of it is probably the most important because whatever activities we're doing, and trust me, we're working on these and this is something we want to do. We don't just want to lead it. We want to experience this. It's already feeling like the retreat we need, even though we're going to be leading and it's going to be a different experience for us. But that said, this is a chance to to get out of the normal routines of every day, the typical you know, sort of patterns that we travel that keep us in habitual patterns. And the community that is already gathering is freaking amazing. It's a bunch of amazing women who have are heart-driven, but who get it, who are connected and are looking for more connection. So I think that's you too. And if it is you and you're able to, please join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. And while there may be some asana, certainly going to be very doable. And we are, we're seasoned teachers. We're going to read the room and we're going to be able to, you know, share what we know with a wide variety of practitioners on a place in a land that is magical. And that first day on November 5th, I believe the farm is actually hosting a Grateful Dead cover band that will be starting before we are done. So some of the practices and things that we're going to do are going to be about incorporating them into uh, an atmosphere that may not be naturally conducive, that we have to kind of live into our lives through these practices and experiences. So um, practices, experiences, activities, blah, 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 blah. come, please join us. We're going to have a freaking blast. I am so excited about all of the things that you and I have been talking about. And for those of you who are coming, if you really want to connect to the energy of uh, the energy of autumn, the wise woman is one of the energies of autumn that I really love. This is for passionate women seeking refuge through nature, community, and really to deepen our practices of self-care, to have experienced this abundance of possibilities of sharing the earth's gifts and connecting and honoring to honoring that wise woman, Mother Gaia, and also that really internal part of ourselves that is 
the wise woman goddess. Yes. And remember how we started this, that we were very peaceful and calm. We also had some ferocity there, too. So we expect to have a little bit of both. And to remember that, you know, I, to stay to stay in your seat, <laughs> you know, we've talked in other in other podcasts and other episodes about this idea of hot and cool boredom. And I wanted to just sort of emphasize that a little bit before we move in, because this can sometimes be that dis, that uncomfortable place that causes people to flee their cushion, to flee their seat. And the interesting thing was, was I had this thought before coming on. And so I went into my training manual from the Tibet house and my teacher, David Nickturn, I'm looking at his manual and I see the hot and cool boredom. That's exactly what I was looking for. And when we were planning this episode, I wanted to call it stay in your seat, stay in your seat, because the impulse to leave is the thing that can sometimes derail us from our practice. Because once we go, why do we come back and, and allow that discomfort? So on his hot and cool boredom, which is excerpted from David Nickturn's HuffPost article called Stay on Your Cushion, the importance of hot and cool boredom during meditation. So I just want to quickly read this to you. He says, when we jump in and actually spend some time practicing meditation, most of us will experience what Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche called hot boredom. Actually, a kind of irritation based on a contrast between the habitual speed and energy of our everyday mind and the spacious and open quality that we have now begun to cultivate. Due to our accumulated restlessness, inertia, and hyperactive lifestyles, we have actually developed a kind of allergy to simply sitting still and being present without making that into yet another project. It is like coming out of warp drive into a more moderate speed. In musical terms, it would be characterized as a decelerando. David wrote the song, Midnight at the Oasis. So he's a, he's a musician. He says, for those of you beginning to explore meditation practice, I suggest that you allow yourself to actually experience this hot boredom and not just jump off the cushion when, it's, when that kind of restlessness is experienced. If you can stick with the practice and keep working with the speedy energy of your mind without freaking out or bolting, there's a very good possibility that you will be able to pass through the experience of hot boredom and reach the next gateway in your meditation practice, which Rinpoche called cool boredom. When we hang in there and taste cool boredom as no big deal, we may begin to experience more ease and relaxation in our mind and in our life. We might find that we do not need to race off, race to fill every possible gap, every possible open space with activity, projects, and accomplishment. <sighs> Unquote. That is David Nickturn. Midnight at the Oasis. And that's from his HuffPost article, Stay on Your Cushion, The Importance of Hot and Cool Boredom During Meditation. He's a beautiful teacher. His son, Ethan Nickturn, I have read from his book, uh, the Road Home, which is beautiful also. He also wrote the book, uh, The Dharma of the Princess Bride. This is the linear die fucking love. Yes. <laughs> we, get to, we, we get to put it into real world stuff, this things that we love. We get to see it. And it's like what you said in the beginning, and I don't remember if you said it when we started recording or when we were talking about the frequency of energy begets energy, which was part of what we had planned and didn't really get into. But this frequency of seeing things because of a mindset or an energy that we find ourselves in, it's even with spiritual practice. If you can see the, the badassness in spiritual practice, you'll see it everywhere. I like badass meditation. That is a way to go, right? <laughs> really like step in and stay on that cushion. It was the same thing when I uh, sat in my sit spot the first day or two uh, at my training. All I wanted to do was get up and move around and go explore the forest. But sit spot means stay in your seat. Right. And I did. I stayed in my seat and everything changed. So stay in your seat until the retreat and then get your ass off the seat and come to the retreat. And we'll find a seat for you while you're there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I think we've, we've done this. Mm -hmm. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up.
Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.